So this week at Interview with a Wire, we had someone that <laughs> it doesn't need any intro. It was uh, <laughs> The Wire, Jackson Rudolph. It was an awesome podcast. We learned so much stuff that uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't know because Jackson Rudolph is a well-known competitor, but it's like it's someone that you don't go talk to. You know what I mean, Manu? Like you see him in the competition and you're shy or you go or like when if Soft you're young, like, yeah, or like my, my students go take picture with him, but you know, like people don't go and talk with him like that much. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. today at the podcast, you're going to hear so many stuff that you, you don't know information that you don't know about him, uh, where he started, uh, his, um, his first inspiration, his teacher, stuff like that. So it's really, uh, it's really a great podcast and, uh, a lot of, a lot of nice information. And as we talk, uh, out, out, uh, outside the uh, era, Uh, Jackson has a podcast, so he know how to talk, and so he drives the podcast almost by himself, <laughs> and mm -hmm. it was really great. Uh, we we ask a few questions, and he answered generously, so uh, it was really awesome. And for those of you who came from the U.S. because of Jackson, thank you for listening. Uh, go watch our other English episode, and pardon, uh, pardon our English, it's a second language. So we do our best to be, you know, uh, to be interesting and stuff like that and to have great guests. I think we have a lot of great guests since the beginning of our English version, uh, version of the podcast. So go watch the other episode. If you want to super, uh, support us on Patreon, uh, we have a $1, $2 level that you can have exclusive content. At $2, you can have exclusive Blitz Quiz that uh, we made with Jackson and the other guests. And uh, for $1, you have all our English episode before everyone else in audio. So if you want to support us, you can even subscribe at the $10 level. You have everything, English, French, all the exclusive, everybody from all around the world. We have martial artists from France, from Canada, from the US, even in Japan. Uh, Hong Kong. So go check out our channel on YouTube. Uh, follow us on Instagram and thank you for the support. Les cicatrices nous rappellent d'où on arrive. Les combos qu'on doit livrer quand le test un chavir. Guerrier, on fera ce qu'il faut pour la famille. Cœur de lion, œil de tigre, on a la paix dans la mire. The battles are never ending, I know. But we will get up and get on with the fight. And we'll do whatever for what is right. Just put your trust in us and us. So this week at Interview with a Warrior, we receive a well-known warrior, <laughs> Sensei Jackson Rudolph from uh, Washington, D.C. in the USA. So thanks for uh, coming tonight. We know you're having a really busy schedule. Thanks for making time for us. So uh, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm a little bit busy right now. I just recently started medical school and have some uh, final exams coming up at the end of this week. Wow. Uh, that's why I'm living in Washington, D.C. now. I was born and raised in Kentucky, went to college in California, worked for a year in Oklahoma City, and now I'm in medical school here in D.C. Uh, so been a little bit of everywhere across the U.S. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to be here tonight, and uh, I always love talking about karate. So Yeah, yeah for well, sure. It's nice. So, thanks. Yeah, and we have a lot of questions, but let's start from the scratch, like we do with everybody. Uh, where did you start martial art? Like when? When does it does it come in your life, and like how does it happen? Like was it because of the Ninja Turtle? Was it because of the school? How? What the? What triggered that? 
So the, the typical inspiration of, of a cartoon or TV show definitely played a role. For me, it was Samurai Jack, which I watched on Cartoon Network as a kid. Um, but really, that wasn't the reason that I, that I went into a martial arts school for the first time. Uh, my first grade teacher was a black belt. And uh, kind of randomly at a school spelling bee, she did a concrete breaking demonstration uh, in front of our whole first grade class. And I thought that it was the coolest thing ever. So like from that moment, I was bugging my parents, like, let me take karate, let me take karate. Um, and then a, a school event came, came up. It was a, a fall festival, they called it, uh, where they were doing like silent auctions for, you know, different uh, small businesses from across my, my little hometown, um, you know, donated prizes, things like that. And one of the prizes was a two-week introductory course at a, a local Taekwondo school called Wong's Martial Arts, which was kind of a, a small chain of schools uh, that was based in Louisville, Kentucky, which was about three hours north. Um, but my town of, of Paducah had a location as well. Um, and so I wound up winning the, the two-week introductory course that so many of us start martial arts in. Um, and I fell in love with it. Um, I had tried I had the Taekwondo. Yeah, it was Taekwondo at that point. Okay. Yeah, that was my original style. Uh, I had tried other sports, baseball, basketball, wasn't very skilled at any of them. Um, and, and quite honestly, I wasn't very good at martial arts either. I wasn't a, a prodigy. I, 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 didn't, I didn't come off as somebody that was gifted. Uh, I, I was very average. Uh, in fact, when I was a yellow belt, which in my Taekwondo system was just the second rank, so I'd been training for maybe four or five months at the time. Uh, and my parents actually set up a meeting with the instructor and they were like, hey, our kid looks lost out there. We're, we're probably going to pull him out of classes, you know, but the instructor was like, no, 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 don't worry, you know, finish your contract and, and it'll be okay. Um, and I loved it. So my parents decided, well, our, our kid's not very good at this, but we'll let him keep going because he likes it. Um, and it really wasn't until I found competition that I really started improving. Um, so long story short on that one, because I know you've got other questions you want to get to. Um, basically, it started with a small inter-school tournament. Uh, my very first event I ever competed in was in Carbondale, Illinois, which is a small town north of where I was living in Kentucky. And um, it was our school from Paducah and then a, a few other, you know, schools in the area. Um, and, it, and I went to that tournament. I think I won a division or two, but it, it wasn't because I was good. It was because there wasn't many people there. Uh, but I liked winning, so I got kind of hooked on that. Um, yeah, I'll build your confidence in yourself. Mm -hmm. Oh, of course. Uh, and then by chance, there was a, a competitor there that I competed against who was on a circuit called RSKC, which was the regional sport karate circuit. Uh, it actually still hosts events to this day in the southeastern United States. Um, and so my parents talked to his parents. We found out about this little circuit. Um, and then I started traveling RSKC, started training a lot more outside of my regular Taekwondo classes. Um, and then RSKC's marquee event was the Bluegrass Nationals, which was a big NASCA tournament uh, promoted by the legendary Ken Eubanks. Uh, in the opinion of many people I've talked to, probably the greatest promoter to ever live, greatest tournament promoter ever in sport karate. Um, so I went to the Bluegrass Nationals, I think twice before, before he unfortunately passed away. Um, but yeah, that, that was kind of the, the journey for me and how I got started in martial arts and then found competition and like I said, it really wasn't until I started competing heavily that I actually, you know, my skills developed and I became 
yeah, good, start right? doing it at home and like putting hours. And I, I'm curious, did you like did you you were doing whipping at your Taekwondo school? Yes. So a lot of traditional Taekwondo programs don't have weapons, but yeah, I was yeah. fortunate my school did. Uh, they started teaching us nunchucks at Blue Belt, I think. Uh, and this surprises a lot of people. I learned nunchucks, sword, uh, commas, escrima, all before I learned how to do bow. Uh, bow was really? one wow. of the last weapons that I picked up. Uh, and the reason for that was because my school did not have a bow curriculum uh, until my instructor purchased the XMA program. So back when Mike Chat and, and crew came out with the XMA program back in the mid-2000s, uh, that was the first time that that school had ever done any bow training. Uh, and so my instructor and his wife learned off of those DVDs and Um, I didn't even want to do bow. I think at the time I had a comma form that I had been trying to, to get down. Um, and, and the instructor's wife came over one day and she said, hey, I'm, I'm going to teach you bow staff today. And I was like, okay. Um, and that was that. So it wasn't something that, that, I, that I went and sought out. Um, it just kind of fell into my lap and uh, the rest is history. Wow. Okay. So you, you never switched, you never switched style. Sorry, Jay. You, you, you keep practicing in Taekwondo all those years? Yeah, all of, all of my formal training is in Taekwondo. I originally went all the way up to a 4-3 black belt in a WTF Taekwondo, World Taekwondo Federation. Um, and then later on, uh, once I started competing against the Presley brothers, we actually uh, formed a, a great friendship. And I would go down uh, to their town just outside of Nashville, Tennessee, And I started training at their Taekwondo school, but they were ITF Taekwondo, International Taekwondo Federation. Um, and so I ultimately wound up doing a transfer test uh, at their school. Um, so Jason Moore and their instructor, uh, myself and all of the Presleys are all black belts under the same school, which is uh, a lot of people don't know that either. I think that's pretty cool. Oh, I, thought, I thought you came from karate, so it's interesting. Juicy gas. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. nice, really nice. So that brings me a question, man. Uh, since you're a legend, you're, I hope you don't take it in the bad way. It's only a question because it's a question out there. It's not, it didn't came from me personally, right? So we, uh, uh, we see a lot of bashing on, you know, social media against speci specifically Taekwondo. Uh, I don't know yeah. if it's a thing more in the US than in the rest of the world. But when I read posts from other karate instructors on like Instagram, there's a lot of bashing on taekwondos and treating all taekwondo school as McDojos automatically. And I'm like, yo, I, we speak with a lot of good, great people came that came from taekwondo all over the world and they seem serious in martial arts. So what's the problem in the US with taekwondo versus karate? Mm -hmm. Well, I by no means would consider myself a, a spokesperson for, yeah. for Taekwondo because it's just want your take on it. Yeah. Life, right? Like I got no, my, exactly. It's your opinion, but still. right. I got I got my foundational training in Taekwondo, and then sport karate kind of took over. Um, but through sport karate, I actually met uh, Herb Perez, who's now we're we're great friends. Whenever I, whenever I'm up in Northern California, we try to meet up for for a meal or whatever. Um, but Herb Perez, the uh, 1992 Olympic gold medal 
medalist in Taekwondo. Uh, and what's funny is uh, Grandmaster Perez is actually very critical of modern Taekwondo on his social media. So that's where I see a lot of the bashing uh, of Taekwondo is, is from, you know, people within the Taekwondo community. Um, and obviously being an Olympic gold medalist, he has a very successful chain of schools in that Northern California area uh, that all teach Taekwondo. Um, and, and really, I think that a lot of the, the bad rap that Taekwondo gets now comes from the way that that fighting style has evolved in the Olympics. Um, I think that the, the electronic scoring and, and some rule changes that have been made over the years um, have, has made Taekwondo at least uh, look uh, like it's not the same level of, of combat combat sport as it used to be. Like if you go back and you go on YouTube and you watch Herb Perez's highlights from the 92 Olympics, he was knocking people out with spin hook kicks, sending helmets flying off into the crowd. Like it, it was a hard hitting, true combat sport. Um, and so I think a lot of people from that generation just don't like the way that modern Olympic Taekwondo looks. And I think that's part of why it gets a bad rep. Um, and then, you know, same thing for karate guys criticizing Taekwondo. Um, Kumite is, is very much a, a hard hitting style. You've got to show that you hit that you hit that person in order to get that point. Right. Um, so I think a lot of it comes down to the, the way that Olympic Taekwondo looks now. Um, but I'm somebody who always uh, is on the side of the athlete. Right. So. I don't think that it's an issue of the Taekwondo athletes who aren't fighting the same way they used to. They're doing what they have to do to win within the set of rules that they've been given. And we run into this in sport karate all the time where sport karate competitors, whether it be point fighters, weapons competitors, or forms competitors, point fighters, you know, they call it tickle tag or whatever, uh, weapons competitors, they call us bow guys, baton twirlers, and then trickers, they call cheerleaders, right? All of that... It, it, it comes back to the same thing, which is sport karate competitors, just like Olympic Taekwondo athletes, are doing what it takes to win in the rules that we've been given. And if it's winning, then we're not going to change. Like, I'm not going to change the way that I do bow because some guy on YouTube called me a name. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing as long as it's going to win. Because as a competitor, that's my job is to win. Um, so I don't think that you can be too overly critical of a, of a particular style, especially when competition is a, a major aspect of that style in the public eye, like Taekwondo with the Olympics. Um, because at the end of the day, the athletes are going to do whatever it takes to win within that set of rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And fun fact, the judges are from all schools. So if you win, you know, it's not like uh, karate or Taekwondo. Like you just, everybody give you the win. You know what I mean? So. Mm -hmm. Now, there is, within, within sport karate, there is some interesting debate to be had about the Korean forms division versus the Japanese forms division in the adult categories, because they split it for the divisions, and then there's a grand championship that takes place between, typically, the, the Korean forms winner and the Japanese forms winner. Sometimes there's a Kenpo forms division winner that'll slide in there as well, but it's typically coming down to the Korean forms competitor and the Japanese forms competitor. And statistically, in the existence of that overall grand, it has been intensely dominated by the Japanese forms representative. Um, some of that is because of the depth in the division, 
Um, but a lot of that is due to judge preference. There's a lot of judges that just tend to prefer the, the look of a Japanese style form. Um, and so that's, that's a big source of debate in the sport karate community is should Korean forms, uh, get more respect than they currently do. Uh, right now, my opinion is we have some absolutely phenomenal athletes in Japanese forms, particularly between Mason Stowell and Ariel Torres. I have, Tremendous respect for both of those competitors, uh, on the men's side at least, and in the women's side, my fiance Gabrielle is you know one of the top competitors, so I'm gonna give her a shout out. Um, so I think that right now there just isn't a Korean forms competitor that has the the talent, the experience, the skill that those top Japanese competitors do. Um, but it would be interesting to see a Korean competitor arise who did have, you know, a similar skill level and talent level um, and to see how that scoring would turn out. But we're, we're going off on a tangent. I'll, I'll stop there and let you guys keep going. <laughs> no, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, That's totally. what we like to discuss here anyway. So <laughs> off topics. <laughs> Because the, the rest people know you have a, you, well, let's go there. You have a podcast yourself, right? So how does it start? Like, uh, it's, and it's, wow, with Black Belt Magazine. I mean, like, it's, wow, like a dream. So uh, how does that happen? Like, uh, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll backtrack a little bit, uh, starting with my, my original relationship with Black Belt Magazine. Um, so Black Belt Magazine is now owned by Century. They purchased Black Belt Magazine a few years ago, um, really to, to kind of save the brand. Um, you know, as, as many people know, the, the print industry is not what it used to be. People don't buy magazines like they used to. Um, and Black Belt initially had a really hard time switching over to an online platform. They just didn't do it very successfully. Um, and Black Belt, there, there was a moment where it looked like they were going to go under. And Century said, this is an iconic brand for the martial arts. We can't let this piece of history die. And so Century stepped in purchased the company, um, and Century became the owner of Black Belt Magazine. Um, so where do I come into that picture? Uh, my relationship with Century started when I was probably 15, 15 or 16 years old. Um, and Century had reached out to me, and they kind of took an interest in me uh, because they wanted to start penetrating the sport karate market. They recognized that I was one of the top competitors, and they wanted to do a, a signature weapons line. So just like a basketball player gets a shoe endorsement deal, the idea was to get me an endorsement deal for, for my bows, uh, which we did with the launch of the, of the Jax Rudolph Signature Series, which has been um, very blessed to say that's been wildly successful, and, and we still sell uh, a lot of different models to this day, several different color schemes, grip, no grip, uh, even a, a training tool that, that I developed myself uh, with the help of some uh, collaboration from some school owners that have been training with a lot of students. I actually have a prototype over here that I can show you guys All in a right, minute. Let's go. Uh, yeah. yeah, let's go. Uh, I'll show it. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you, do yeah that's so that's the podcast we have right now. Right, right. Uh, so the trainer bow, I'll, I'll keep this kind of short. You'll notice it's kind of weird in that there's two grips on it. Um, and what this is designed for, and if I stand it up, you'll see that I'm sitting down and it's just barely taller than me. So this is, this is a one-size-fits-all staff. Um, a child could pick this up and use it to train with as a full-size weapon, or an adult like myself could pick it up and hold it by these grips here 
And that would be about what true thirds position is. And thirds position, for those of you that may not know uh, bow staff terminology, is basically the proper striking position such that when you make contact with your body, you're fully extending your strike out in front on all those close range strikes. Uh, very, very, very important part of striking, particularly for sport karate competition, because judges are going to look for if your hands are in that proper position or not. Um, so this is a training tool so that, you know, a school could theoretically have 20 or 30 of these and then be teaching a bow class and say, okay, everybody go grab your trainer bow. We're going to drill striking. And then you can go through a number of different striking drills. It's got good weight and durability to it. Um, I, I trained, I've trained with this for probably three years now and it never broken it. And I strike hard when I train, I go hard. You guys have seen me break bows at tournaments and stuff before. Um, and, and, and it has, uh, it's held up and it has stood the test of time. Um, because the, the common problem that I noticed when I would go teach seminars is, you know, a school owner would say, Hey, everybody go get your bow. And then there's this big stack of all these different size bows over in the corner and kids are trying to find one that works for them. And then you get a six year old with a six foot tall bow and it's just a mess. Right. And so the idea for a one size fits all bow uh, was something that I came up with and, and century helped turn that into a reality. And you can find that on the website right now as well. Uh, but anyway, so that was the start of my relationship with century. That relationship grew when Century became Team Paul Mitchell's apparel sponsor. Um, so, and I'm sure we'll get into the story of, of my relationship with Team Paul Mitchell. But um, by the time I was 16, I had been on Paul Mitchell for two years already. And in a weird way, I was kind of already one of the veterans of the team. Um, because around that time period in 2012, 2013, um, the team was going through a, a shift. Um, where a whole bunch of great competitors were all retiring at the same time. Uh, Caitlin Deschel had recently retired. Kalman Choka retired in 2011. Matt Emig retired in 2012. A number of our fighters retired. Alex Lane, Greg Betlock, uh, Elias Lemon. So we lost a whole lot of, of veterans in a very short period of time. And so I think that I was technically the longest tenured active member on the team by the time I was like 17 years old. Um, so I very quickly found myself in kind of a, a leadership position amongst the players on the team. And so around this time that Century was having the conversations with Paul Mitchell about maybe doing an apparel sponsorship, um, they decided, you know, hey, Jackson, we've been talking about doing this weapons deal. Let's just go ahead and bring you out to Oklahoma City. We can talk about Paul Mitchell. We can talk about the weapons deal. Um, and so my dad and I got in the car and we drove from Kentucky to Oklahoma City. Um, and we had some of those initial meetings about the Signature Series weapons and about Team Paul Mitchell, um, you know, having Century as a partner. Um, so it, the most impressive thing about Century, you know, everybody that goes there talks about how big the facility is, how much they do in-house. They literally have all the executive offices, all the manufacturing, all the shipping. Uh, granted, they do do some stuff overseas, but a vast majority of their production happens right there in this massive complex in Oklahoma City. Um, but really what impressed me was the culture inside that massive complex. Uh, I was welcomed. It, it was a family environment from the moment that I stepped through the door. Uh, all kinds of great people there in every department. Um, and I just knew that it, it was going to be a good partnership for years to come. Um, and so 
you know, fast forward, I graduate from Stanford and I'm getting ready to go to medical school. Uh, and I did something that's very common for uh, aspiring medical students. I took a gap year, which is basically a year of not going to school so that I can focus on my application, right? So I finished my four years at Stanford. COVID happened at the end of that too, which contributed to my decision to do a gap year. And I said, okay, I'm going to take a year off from school. I'm going to focus on my application and I'm going to apply to medical school, uh, which worked out as we can tell. I'm now living in DC as a medical student. Um, and uh, when Century found out that when I was going to be, you know, taking this year off of school, they said, uh, well, hey, why don't you move to Oklahoma City and, and we'll give you an office and come work with us for a year. And I thought that was a great opportunity. So I moved to Oklahoma City and uh, had my own little office, which the reason I bring up having my own office is because there's a really cool feature about it that I'm going to get to in just a second. Uh, when I first got there, um, I didn't know what I was going to be doing. You know, I kind of expected to be a weapons guy. I kind of expected to be, you know, um, in a way, a consultant to their weapons department and research and development and helping them come up with uh, ways to increase weapons quality and, and things of that nature because that's my wheelhouse, right? Um, but then when I got there, um, they kind of started explaining to me like, well, you know, we, we purchased Black Belt Magazine a couple years ago. We're trying to increase its online presence. Um, and, and we were wondering if you could help with that. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up, you know, I remember, you know, we would have Black Belt Magazine in the Taekwondo school and we would read it after class. So I was like, of course I'll help with this. Like, I came to do whatever you guys needed me to do. And if this is what I got to do, let, let's make Black Belt Magazine big again. Um, and so that's what we did. We started focusing heavy on the website, uh, started focusing heavy on social media. Big shout out to a guy that a lot of sport karate people don't know his name. His name is Patrick Sternkopf, uh, but he's a big behind the scenes guy for Black Belt Magazine, uh, has done incredible work for the brand. And um, alongside him, uh, we really built up the, the online presence. And uh, just a couple of months ago, uh, now Gabrielle is working with Black Belt as well, my fiance, Gabrielle Dunn. Um, so with the help of, of Gabrielle and with the work that I did, uh, Black Belt Magazine surpassed 1 million people reached in a single month for the first time that they've ever done uh, on wow. social media, website, all their platforms. Nice. Uh, Good job, man. It's a, yeah, that, that was a huge milestone that we were really happy about. How long How long since they told you? Also, oh, it took like a year almost? Yeah, it was about a year. It was about a year. When, wow. When first, Good when job. I first took over a lot of the social media stuff which granted, I had a lot to learn. My degree is in human biology, not in social media marketing. Um, so I had to learn on the job pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, when I first started out, we had maybe around 200,000 uh, users per month that would be you know, on the website and stuff like that. Uh, so to take that up and, and have an you know, 800,000 user per month increase, uh, that, that's something that we were really, really happy about. You know, we're gonna continue to, to keep pushing forward with that. Uh, your original question was about the podcast. So yeah. the podcast, we just, we're getting to it. We're getting to it. It, uh, it just kind of happened organically. Um, you know, I, I give a lot of credit to uh, the Inside Scoop podcast with uh, Alex Dingman and Jeff Doss. Uh, they do a great show. Uh, I tuned into their show uh, frequently and, you know, they kind of inspired me. I was like, hey, you know what? What if I did a podcast? And so, yeah, for sure. Podcasts yeah. are taking over in U.S. like so much. It was like we need one about martial art and more, much more than just one, you know? 
Right. Absolutely. And that's one thing that I love about the podcast community is that there are so many content creators in that space now. And it makes for a lot of collaboration, just like what we've got going right now. Yeah. Uh, but the only thing I think is you just have to have a, your own concept. Just don't copy someone else because otherwise you're a copycat, you know, it's, and that's what not good. But if you do like something uh, of your taste, people will go and, and hear it, even though you have the same people or whatever. It's not going to be the same discussion if the topic is not the same, you know. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I started, I, I am a, anybody that knows me will tell you, I am a huge sport karate history nerd, like all the way from the beginnings of sport karate, all the way to present. Like, you know, I, I, I've memorized a lot of the past champions, forms, weapons, and fighting. I study the film, anything that I can find on YouTube. Uh, I just love it. I love studying the history. And so, That's what really inspired the start of the podcast was other podcasts and me thinking it looked like fun and, you know, me having this passion to share sport karate history. Um, and I think that's what makes my show unique is that I talk about a lot of history on the show, uh, whereas typically podcasts are more current events and, you know, talking to the stars of the sport and all that. And we do some of that on my show as well, but there's a lot of sport karate history talk specifically. Uh, And so I started it before I ever moved to Oklahoma City. I started it from my dorm room at Stanford, um, you know, just did a, a couple of audio only episodes. And then when I moved to Oklahoma and we started doing the Black Belt Magazine thing, the Black Belt Magazine people were like, hey, you know, that podcast you've got is pretty good. Can we make that a, a Black Belt thing? And I was like, sure, that'll just help grow, you know, Black Belt Magazine. And one big uphill battle that I've been fighting within the Black Belt Magazine community Not only have we been trying to grow that community, but I've personally been on a mission to make sport karate more accepted within that community. Because sport karate, as we discussed, suffers from a lot of stereotypes about this isn't real martial arts or that wouldn't work on the street is what you always hear, right? Um, and so I've been doing a lot of work um, to try to get that community to embrace sport karate. And slowly but surely, it's working. You know, I remember my first week or two on the job, I would make a social media post that had something to do with sport karate. And it would get, you know, a ton of comments, but they would all be negative people bashing sport karate, saying this person's not legit or whatever. Um, fast forward to today, we make sport karate posts on the website on social media pretty regularly. Um, and it's rare that we ever see much negativity out of it. Most of the time, people are very accepting of it. Uh, we've kind of developed our own little sport karate community within Black Belt Magazine, uh, which is something else that, that I'm really proud of. So... You know, the podcast being on Black Belt, really the podcast started as, as just a hobby because I wanted to do it for fun. Uh, but the Black Belt stuff go, goes a lot deeper. I teased that there was something really cool back in my old office in Oklahoma City. Um, so I mentioned being a history buff. The coolest thing when, when they, you know, showed me my office where I'd be working is the entire back wall of the office. And if you watch a few of the episodes of my podcast from while I was living in Oklahoma City, you can actually see this like wall of binders that they're like black and red and they've got the Black Belt Magazine logo on them. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but an old sport karate magazine called Karate Illustrated, which was the primary source of sport karate rankings back in the 90s and even in the 80s before that, was owned by Black Belt Magazine. And so all of those old archives were in a big bookshelf right behind my desk in my office. 
And so it, it was an incredible resource. You know, once I get done with my work for the day and teach whatever private lessons I had to teach, uh, I, I would sit there for a while and go through those old archives. And, and there's some great stuff in there. There was uh, an article about, you know, Team Paul Mitchell on like their five year anniversary. We're now 35 years old. Uh, there was an article about John Valera's retirement. Um, and, and what was so cool about it is it, it was my vision for sport karate. Like I want sport karate to be something that is accepted as a professional sport and that the top athletes are, are somewhat household names, at least in the, in the karate community, right? At least martial artists all know who these sport karate champions are. Um, and with like the John Valera retirement article that I found from 99, I think it was, um, that's how it felt. Like it felt like I was reading an article in Sports Illustrated about Michael Jordan's retirement. That's what it felt like I was reading. And so creating that type of narrative for sport karate is something that, I, that I've worked really, really hard to try to develop. Uh, and that's why I pushed for the Black Belt Magazine rankings, which is a, a revitalized version of the sport karate, or not sport karate, the Karate Illustrated rankings from back in the day. Um, and then, you know, athlete profiles and doing write-ups on the events. And I've gotten into commentating as well to try to help bring that professionalism to the sport uh, because commentating is another kind of hidden passion of mine. Uh, but, yeah, so the, the Black Belt Magazine um, relationship in general runs, runs really deep. And, and there's a lot of work that's still ongoing um, that I'm really excited about. And, uh, yeah, I, I continue to work for them even though I'm in medical school. Uh, I've kind of moved into an advisory role and I still publish content for them and all that. So Gabrielle has taken over a lot of the day-to-day the -day work that I used to do, uh, but I'm still very, very actively involved. Man, do you know, do you know, uh, do you know football? Like, do you follow football a little bit? Football? Yeah, because, <laughs> yeah. because I, I hear you since the beginning and I'm like, Yo, this guy is like the Laurent Duvernay Tardif of karate. He's like winning everything and everything he did. Like I'm like, it's crazy, man. You're you're going to karate uh, to medical school exactly like him, and he just won the Super Bowl, and he he's in Montreal doing his uh, medical studies in the same yeah. time. He's a crazy <laughs> guy, you know. And it, it, you're it all doing makes sense because because you know if if you always do the same, it's kind of get like a nonsense or boring at some point you know what i mean and you you do this and then that and then that and then it's always a new challenge and then you make it grow you're going to do this the podcast that's so it's always it's always hype you know like it's always alive when you're making a, a project growing you know so uh no i think it, it's it, it makes sense but because you're a beast, you know? So it, it, it's like, there's just so many hours in a day. So it's insane that you can do all of that. And uh, good job. And really, how old are you now, right now? I'm 23. And thank you for the compliment, by the way. The, the one thing that I always tell people is, if you do what whatever you're passionate about, then it makes it a lot easier to get through it all, right? Like, I don't, I don't take on any new position that I'm not wholeheartedly passionate about being the best at whatever that is, right? So when I started a podcast, I didn't just do it because I felt like I needed to do it. I did it because I, I loved the idea of being a podcast host and I wanted to, to make myself great at it. Um, and it's true for, for anything that, that I've pursued. It's 
I first fall in love with it. I develop a passion for it. And then I, I work very hard to, to become very good at, at whatever that field is. Um, and, and really, you know, a, a lot of people think like, oh, you must be so stressed out. And you must work all the time. Yes, I work all mm-hmm. the time, but it's not stressful it because work. I love the work that I do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're waking up and you're like, I'm going to podcast with people that I admire. And you know, it's, it's like, sorry, but for us, like tonight I was doing my class and then I was like, man, I'm going to talk with Jackson Rudolph. It's like insane. Like, no, but you know, it's like, it doesn't feel like I'm going to work. You know, it's just like, it's, it's passion. It's really nice. I had a question uh, because I, that's the fuel that you need. Something you discuss uh, sooner. You talk about like the bad rep that sport karate and, you know, open form and open form with bow and stuff like that. Uh, and we talk a lot about that on our podcast with different kind of people coming from different background, you know. And do you have the impression that it may be a generational thing? Because, I mean, when we speak with younger people, they are like, you know, no, sport karate is a real martial art. And It's martial. It brings something to the people who practice it. As long as you don't see it as something that you can take as is in the street, but you see it as something that will build you up as a better martial artist, it's it's perfectly fine, you know. And when you heard, uh, when you talk about open form or you know sport martial art with older traditional guys, often they were like, they will be like. People that you describe on the internet, like it's not real, blah, blah, blah. You're, it's fake. It's, uh, you know, uh, cheerleading. Or, or, and uh, and it's funny because to me, traditional form are as legit in 2021 as open form because nobody, nobody will ever defend himself with Sai in the street or with Tanfa, you know? So... You practice Tanfa because you like it and because it brings something to your martial art and it's perfectly fine. But don't tell me you're going to defend yourself in the street with Tanfa, except if you're a cop, for example. But Sai or, I don't know, Katana, you will never defend yourself in the street with that. So if you do that, it's because you love that. It brings something to your life and it's perfectly fine. And if it builds you up as a martial artist, to me, it's as legit as open form or, you know, sport karate and stuff like that. And I'm not at all an uh, open form guy. You know, you know, I see you people doing that. My girlfriend is a champion in her discipline and categories and everything with Kama. And I'm like, it's great. I will never do that. But it's really great. I, but I will never do that because I'm really, really bad at doing you know, trolls and stuff like that. It's not in me, but I can see the level of difficulty, you know? Yeah, I recognize the talent needed, even though it's not my thing. I don't I don't love that very much, doing it for myself, but I can see the point, you know? And I think, I think the younger generation see it more, maybe. The, what, what's your take on that? Well, I think that... If- It comes down to two things that we see in other sports. We just don't realize it because those sports 
are completely separate, right? Like how often when, uh, you know, I'll be scrolling Instagram or whatever, and I'll see a post from ESPN, right? And it'll be a post about soccer. And then there will be some American in the comments that says, can you explain this in terms of basketball? Suggesting that like, oh, well, soccer's stupid. Like I want to hear about basketball, right? And then you hear the same thing when they make a basketball post and you scroll in the comments and somebody from somewhere else in the world where soccer's the most popular, right? Somebody's commenting, can you put this in terms of soccer? This whole American basketball thing is stupid, right? Um, and so within martial arts, we get that exact same thing. It's just between styles that still fall under the umbrella of martial arts, right? Just like how soccer and basketball both fall under the umbrella of sports, right? Karate people bashing Taekwondo, traditionalists bashing sport karate, right? It's the same phenomenon. It just exists within a different umbrella of martial arts. And so that's why it, it often gets um, put under the microscope in the martial arts community because it's so specific. Um, and then the, the other side of that is, you, you know, you mentioned how the, the old heads are often critical of the, the CMX and, and all that. Um, you see the same thing in other sports as well. How often in basketball do we hear the conversation of, well, LeBron's great, but he never could have played in the 90s. Michael Jordan played in such a tougher era, right? And, so, and same thing, like until Tom, until Tom Brady won a million Super Bowls, right? He, In my opinion, Tom Brady was already the GOAT probably before the Atlanta comeback. Really, when they beat Seattle in the Super Bowl, Tom Brady had pretty much achieved his GOAT status, right? But people at that time were still arguing, no, Joe Montana, Joe Montana, he's the GOAT. And I'd say it was it was pretty 50-50, kind of like Jordan LeBron is now, where it's like, you know, half people say Jordan, half people say LeBron. But then, of course, Brady wins his two more rings, and now everybody's like, okay, yeah, Brady's the GOAT, right? But it's the same thing that we can observe across multiple sports of the older generation is always going to think that how it was in their day was the best way because that's what they grew up with. That's what they fell in love with. And then the newer generation, the kids are always going to say, oh, well, no, it's the best as it is right now because those kids and that younger generation, that's what they're either actively doing or will grow into doing. And so they want that to be the best, right? Um, and so really, I, I think it's a phenomenon that we see in other sports and other areas of athletics, it just gets focused on more in martial arts because it's martial artists against martial artists instead of basketball players from this other bubble yeah, versus perfectly. soccer players of this and other bubble. And it's funny because I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. if you take, for example, hockey here in Quebec, hockey is really the number one sport, you know? And if you take hockey as an example, like the, the greatest of all time for pretty much everybody could be, for example, Maurice Richard, right? Okay, but Maurice Richard playing today with two days player, with the training they got, with the speed of the game, with the training method and everything, it will be probably beaten. Because in his time, there was like nine teams in the league. And the, the, the player were like, yeah, smoking during the game. And like they were like uh, working at the shop during the day and go play in the NHL by night. Today, the players are like killing machine. So you cannot compare those. But 
you never go, you will never have for example um a, a carry price today if if Patrick Roy never played before because older legends are the reason that younger people came to the sports so you don't you don't take out the goat status to for example Michael Jordan by saying uh, probably except for example maybe I'm I'm saying an enormity here but that LeBron beats him today for example okay it's just an example because Michael Jordan was a goat of his time and there will probably never have a, a LeBron James today if Michael Jordan never came so the other thing to remember about competitive martial arts about sport karate is that it's a very very young sport right So in my opinion, there's really not that much of an era gap between Jordan and LeBron. Basketball is played differently. The defenses are different. The types of players are different. The offenses are different as well. But there's not as big of an era gap in basketball as there is in sport karate because basketball's been around longer than sport karate's been around. And so when you look at the relative time, Jordan and LeBron's career is closer than say Matt Emig's career and John Valera's career, right? Sport karate really has only been around as we know it today since the 70s or so. Um and so, you know, the 90s of sport karate seems like forever ago um compared to today because that is quite literally halfway back to the beginning of sport karate's history. Like it was half of our history from the beginning to Valera and then another half of our history from Valera to the competitors of today. So when you look at at a Mike Chat and a John not a Mike Chat, sorry, a Matt Emig and a John Valera or Mike Chat for that matter or a Carmichael Simon whoever. But you look at Matt who I consider to be the greatest extreme martial artist of all time and then you look at any of those three, uh Chat, Valera, Simon, you look at any of those three they're very very different right like jordan and lebron it's clear they're playing the same game emig and those three were playing a different game forms were completely different judging was completely different and so in sport karate that era gap that you talk about is is even more severe right you go back and look at 2010 11 years ago people were doing a maximum of maybe three, four, if somebody was crazy, they would do five releases in a bow form. In 2011, I started doing a bow form that had 13 releases in it. And then now the average bow form on the NASCA circuit, at least the average winning CMX bow form has anywhere from eight to 12 releases. And so we've more than doubled the average amount of releases that people do in a routine in a span of 10 years. So that it's very quickly evolving and it's a very short history in in sports terms which makes the era gaps seem really really large. And speaking of legends, who who was your your inspiration personally? He wasn't the first one that I ever saw. The the first group that I ever saw was at the 2006 US Open because that was the the first US Open I attended and I sat in the back row of the Night of Champions and I watched Matt Emig and I watched Mark Canizzato and I watched Lauren Carney who would later become my instructor. Uh and, and I was inspired by them initially. Like that group of people at the 2006 US Open in the adult division. Um that was my initial inspiration. 
Um, but I would say my number one inspiration as my career developed uh, became Kalman Choka. Um, because around the time that Kalman was on his reign of dominance from 2008 through his retirement at the end of 2011, um, that's when I was really first starting to win. Uh, made it on stage for the first time at the 2008 Diamonds, um, and then won my first overall grand at the 2010 U.S. Capital, uh, U.S. Capital, uh, Compete Nationals, excuse me, in California, um, and then would go on to win my first U.S. Open later in 2010. So I was kind of just starting to break through and win at the same time that Kalman was dominating the men's weapons division, right? Uh, and, and Kalman was so dominant that when he walked on stage, you knew several things. You knew he was going to hit his form, and you knew he was going to win. The question became how many judges were going to give him a 10, right? It wasn't, is Kalman going to get beat? It's how many 10s is Kalman going to get, right? Um, and so I made that my goal. Like I, I, from the moment that I saw Kalman do that and I started winning weapons grands at the age of 13, I said that I want my career to be that. I want to be the guy that can go into the men's division and go on stage and you know that I'm going to hit my form and you know I'm going to win. All that's left to be decided is how it happens, right? Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very fortunate to say that, you know, especially in the last few years of my career um, – I feel like there were moments where, where I got there, right? Not to say that I've gotten to Kalman's level or surpassed him, anything like that. I'm very much somebody who believes that there are generational goats and Kalman will always be the goat of his era. Um, and whatever people want to say about where I rank all time, that's not for me to decide. I'm not, uh, I don't participate in those discussions. It's not my job to, it's everybody else's job to, right? It's just my job to go out there and perform. Um, but, you know, moving into the men's division, you know, 2016, I think, was my first full season as an adult. Um, Kalman was the one who was always on my mind. I wasn't, I wasn't competing against those who were in the ring with me. I was competing against the precedent that Kalman set and trying to achieve that level of greatness. And at 23, how do you see your future as a competitor? Mm-hmm, because now you're in medical school and stuff. So yeah, with medical school coming, what's Let us know. For? Tell us the spoil. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, so, of course, as a medical student, um, it's different than college. Uh, a lot more time intensive, a lot more brain intensive. Uh, I don't have the time to train that I used to. Uh, and I'm not going to go out there and compete if I'm not myself. I'm not going to go out there, even if I think I can win, If I can't be my best, I'm not going to put myself out there. Um, now, that being said, I will also say a lot of people, based on the way that U.S. Open went for me, you know, U.S. Open, I had an undefeated weekend, uh, didn't score below a nine all weekend. I got nines every time I stepped in the ring, so it was a great weekend for me. And then, um, you know, if you watch that, that broadcast that we did on Black Belt Magazine, uh, because ESPN didn't happen this year because of COVID, but... On that Black Belt Magazine stream, you know, the, the way that I entered the ring, the, the, the move that I chose at the end of my form, that where I kind of caught the bow up against my chest in a, in a prayer position, as many people know, my faith is really important to me. Um, and then the way that I, that I exited the ring, um, you know, the, there was buzz that, that maybe that was, that was my last run. Um, but I'll say right here that that's not necessarily true. Um, you know, I, I still love competing. I still love doing bow. 
Um, and if I think that I can go out there and be my best, then I will go out there and be my best again. Uh, but I won't go out there if I won't be at my best, right? Uh, Man, I, I, I would tell to those people that a guy win the Super Bowl doing medical study so you can do it man if man, you can man. you can totally. do <laughs> huh? he was totally at medical school sure. in the same time yeah mm -hmm. in the same era that he won the super bowl with the the chief he was at medical school at mcgill man that's insane yeah. so it's doable yeah, yeah. That, is, that is crazy but to, to wrap that up i will say uh So I'm not retired, but mm, you guys won't course. see me competing as, as often as I used to. You know, medical school is a priority, and, uh, but I'm not done yet. We'll, uh, we'll see what the future holds. I've got a lot of students. I'm still going to be at events. You know, I have a final exam this Friday. As soon as I finish that final, I'm getting on a plane and going to Diamonds. I'm not competing, but I'm going to be there to see my students and support my teammates on Paul Mitchell. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm addicted to sport karate. People I love, love a good comeback and, anyway. Uh, so I'll, I'll always yeah. be around. But Look it, at GSP. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it you surprised know? me that you don't go for like a, more like having a school and a lot of student and going everywhere. Giving like you, you go for like a, a job Seminar like a, full time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you could like you, you, you could huge But yeah, yeah, yeah. You could win your life just doing both seminar and stuff. And so going for a like you're going to be a doctor. <laughs> it's not bad. Like right, but like uh, it's cool that you go for like a. Not like a normal job, but like not art job. You know what I mean? Like a lot of people too in NASCAR determine like uh, doing a sequence for a uh, stunt people or like a movie. So like Matt, right? Matt is yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Mariev or friend. Yeah, mm, she's a stunt Marie girl. So because like they have a profile that they tend to go that way. So it's really nice for you mm. like to go and do something so straight, you know. And, and I love teaching martial arts. You know, I, I've taught upwards of 250 seminars. I've taught literally thousands of private lessons. I love teaching, um, but medicine was always a dream for me. I've wanted to be a, a surgeon since I was in sixth grade. Um, and that was at the same time that I wanted to be, you know, one of the best weapons competitors in the world. Um, so it, it was always a personal goal of mine. But then I, I also think that there's, there's two scenarios that used to play out in, in, sport karate culture of years past, right? Um, where it, when somebody travels the NASCA circuit in particular for a full season, you do 12 to 15 NASCA tournaments um, in, you know, in what I would consider my prime, those first few years in the adult division, I was training three to four hours a day. I was traveling maybe 45 weekends a year, 12 to 15 of those weekends for tournaments. And then all those other weekends going off and teaching seminars, things of that nature. Um, so to be one of the top guys on the NASCA circuit, it is extremely time consuming. And I think that in previous generations, there was a group of people that knew exactly what they wanted. They were like, I'm going to compete on NASCA for as long as I can because I love this and I want to open a school because I love martial arts and, or I'm going to, you know, use it. I'm going to move to LA and I'm going to do stunts because that's what I love. And so there was one group that really had vision and that really knew what they wanted to do and they wanted it to be in martial arts. But then it seems like there were others who didn't necessarily want to do martial arts for their career but they loved being a world champion NASCAR competitor. And because it's so time consuming, you know, when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, 
it just becomes your normal to like, oh yeah, we're going to a tournament this weekend. And, you know, I think that when some of those competitors that didn't really think about it too much hit 24, 25, they realize, wait a minute, I can't make a living traveling sport karate tournament. Because you can't, right? The prize money is not enough to, to make any kind of a living off of, right? If you're if you're a sport karate world Ooh. champion, you love the sport because you're not hey, in you money, you're Canada, not, bro. Because we don't get either of those, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, all, all of that is to say is that I recognized that because I, I, I studied the history so carefully uh, that I recognized that People retire from sport karate when they're 24 or 25 years old, mm-hmm. oftentimes because they realize they got to go get a job, right? Whether that be opening a school or going to college or whatever, they realize I got to find some way mm-hmm. to make money because I got to move out of my parents' house now, right? Um, and so, you know, for me, this wasn't, you know, as a middle schooler, I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to advocate for this or whatever, right? But in my, in my current situation, I look at what I've done in sport karate and going to medical school as saying, I put it this way, I would not have gotten the opportunity to go to Stanford, one of the top schools in the U.S., um, if I had not been a sport karate world champion, right? I had good grades and I, I wrote up a good application, but that doesn't get you in. I would not have gotten that opportunity had I not been mm. the best bow staff competitor at my age in the world, Right. That was my special thing that helped me get in. And so my message to a lot of kids that are coming up in sport karate now is, if you want to open a school, fantastic. We need more martial arts schools. If you want to go into stunts, awesome. We've had a lot of people that have become uber successful um, in the stunt industry from sport karate. There's a laundry list of people that have done that. But if you don't want to make a career out of martial arts, or if you want to do martial arts forever, but you don't want that to be your primary source of income, hey, you can use sport karate as a method to get other opportunities, right? You can use sport karate as a, as a means to get the scholarship or to get into that school that you want to go to. Um, and then you can, you can make that your reality. So for me, the dream of becoming a surgeon would not have been a reality mm-hmm. if it was not for my sport karate career. Whether it was the, the basic principles that I learned as a white belt about hard work and discipline and respect and all those things that equipped me for success, or it was you know the laurels of being a world champion and having that you know on my Stanford application that ultimately got me that opportunity to to get that you know amazing degree and that great education that I got. Mm. Um, it wouldn't have happened without sport karate. And so, you know, that, that's one big thing that I preach is that doing sport karate and being great at it doesn't mean that you have to have your entire life focused around martial arts. If you have other passions, you can use sport karate as a means to live out those other passions. And if you want your whole exactly. life to be martial arts, that's awesome too. Exactly, you know what man. I mean? It's a that's perfect really a final, nice man. final, yeah, right? <laughs> really perfect. To so close, we, you know, we won't take discussion. more of your time. You need to go sleep. I'm sure you have exams soon. So we're going to hand that like that. Thanks again for taking time, giving such amazing answer. You, re- you were really much more than uh, you gave everything. Like it was really great. Really generous Thanks of you. you. Thank yeah, you, man. Yeah. And I, I, 
I'd love to say that at 23, I do as much stuff as you did. You're legendary. Congrats and continue your good work, man. Mm -hmm. You're inspirational for youngins out there and for older people like me. Thank you. Well, thank you guys both very much. You know, that, that means the world to me. And, you know, I just, um, I feel blessed every day that I just did something that I loved and, and kept doing it because I loved it. Um, and, and the fact that, that it has an impact on people, I got lucky. What can I say? Um, so thank you very much for the kind words. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, like I said before, I Perfect. love talking shop. I love talking about karate. Um, so any, any time that you guys want to talk about more, karate, sure. just let me know and, uh, and I'll make a comment. <laughs>